Welcome to the Centre of Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy podcast. In this edition, we hear from speakers at an education day coordinated by the Victorian Paediatric Rehabilitation Service. We partnered with VPRS to record and share selected sessions. We'll hear this discussion in four parts. This is part one. In parts two, three, and four, upper limb orthoses, outpatient development assessment programs, and early detection and intervention. We'll hear now from Professor Christine Imms, head of the School of Allied Health at Australian Catholic University. Christine talks about participation in rehabilitation. She starts by posing the question, what is participation? Because if we really want to enhance participation, and we do, we do see it um, as the ultimate outcome of our interventions, I think, is to enable people to be actually living, um, living a good life, living an ordinary life, as the NDIA would say. So if we want to enhance participation, then we really need to be able to agree on what it is, to understand what influences it, and to work out how to support positive outcomes for individuals and their families. So probably everybody in this room is aware that um, when the publication of the ICF occurred in 2001, they defined participation as involvement in a life situation. And, and from that time, they really put this word participation on the map in childhood disability research and in childhood disability practice, I think, and education. So if we think about what's happened since 2001, we can talk about all of the body of research that's been going on that mapped participation patterns and barriers and facilitators to participation for people who have childhood onset disability. The arrow with those dot points just talks about the sort of research that I've been doing over that period of time, and that's, it's kind of in line with what's been happening internationally. But I think we'd also recognise that since 2001, there's been an enormous discourse in the literature around what's the difference between activity and participation, and I think probably a reasonable amount of confusion about when it stops being activity and starts being participation. And so because of that, um, I shifted uh, in the sort of the last two or three years from really looking at trying to understand patterns of participation and start to try and build intervention, pilot intervention models around participation, to stop and step back and take another really good look at, well, what is it that we're really talking about? And what we thought back in 2014 was that actually we, we've been studying this idea since 2001 now, and we do have emerging intervention research in the field. So we really wanted to figure out whether or not we could look at intervention research that aimed to change participation outcomes for, for children um, and see whether it was effective and also if we could use the measures that were used in intervention research to really inform us about what people were really meant by participation when they were researching it. So we published a couple of different systematic reviews. So the first one was the effective interventions aimed at improving participation outcomes. And for this particular systematic review, we, we really wanted to look at high-level evidence, so we only included the randomised control trials that came out of that, that review. Now, we really took a very broad-based perspective. We looked in literature from education, from psychology and from health, um, and so we really were quite broad in our approach. Those seven reviews, though, um, sorry, those seven RCTs, though, provided quite diverse types of intervention to change participation outcomes. So some focused on building skills and changing body structures and functions. Some looked at coaching young people. Some provided their intervention in a group setting, some in an individual setting. And some of it was goal-focused and some of it wasn't. So it was quite broad in its approach. 
And what we found in terms of outcomes was that only three of those RCTs showed a positive effect on participation outcomes. And those outcomes related to um, engagement, school attendance and recreational activity um, participation. So that was, that was interesting for a start, sort of 15 years down the track we really only had a few studies to really draw on and they weren't really um, definitive. So then we went, well, what, what do these researchers mean when they, when they study participation? What were they really talking about then if we had this diversity? So then what we did was we actually went back into the literature that we had pulled from the first search, so remembering that was a very broad body of literature, and we looked at, um, did a systematic review, more of a qualitative content systematic review than a, an outcomes review, to see if we could figure out what, did, what do researchers really mean? And for this review, we included 25 intervention studies. So we didn't care whether they were randomised control trials or not, so long as the authors actually explicitly set out to improve participation outcomes as a part of an intervention. Of those 25 different studies, only four authors actually defined participation, even though they were planning to change it. A further six referred to the ICF somewhere in their paper, but they didn't actually use the definition. And then when it came to measuring participation outcomes, we found 38 different measures were used to actually evaluate what they called participation in these studies. So that sort of confirmed the ongoing confusion, I guess, uh, in the literature for us. Then what we did was we actually extracted the text from those papers and did a thematic analysis. And we found six key themes were discussed by authors when they talked about participation. Now, of those six themes, it was possible to map them back to the measures that um, the authors chose, so that was good. But uh, these are the actual themes. So we found that participation attendance in activities, involvement in activities, and then activity competence, sense of self, preferences and environment were the six different things that authors tended to talk about when they were referring to participation. Now, of these six themes, we deemed that attendance and involvement were actually about participation, and the other things were related to participation but were not the same as, so they're different. Important but different. And at the end of that review, we tried to get some sense from that uh, literature of how these things might go together, and we devised this family of participation-related constructs as a, a first step, if you like, in trying to understand what, how these ideas might go together. And of course we would say that the environment is important. Um, and the blue circles relate to things about the individual and the, and the red circles, the participation constructs. And so, as I said, we were able to map these six themes back to the measures people used when they were measuring participation outcomes. And when we did that, though, across those 25 studies, what we found was that the most common outcome measured was activity competence. So how well the child performed, not whether they were participating or not. So at the end of that review, we defined participation with a little bit more clarity, I think, as involvement in a life situation that's consistent with the WHO, World Health Organisation, but that it has two distinct elements that are essential. The first is attendance and the second involvement. So attendance is defined as being there, and that could be measured as frequency of turning up somewhere or attending, the range or the diversity of the activities in which you take part. And the second element is involvement while attending. And that is really your experience of participation. And that could include elements of engagement, persistence, perhaps social connection, but not necessarily, and affect. 
So the next thing we did was we thought, well, okay, well, we've got this idea from the literature. Can we substantiate this framework that came up from other theoretical knowledge that we have in childhood disability? So then what we did was we worked on uh, further development of that framework using a conceptual paper. So we wanted to really look at what did we already know about these um, ideas. And so we moved from this first sort of circle bubble kind of framework into this uh, fancy flying boy thing. So I'm going to talk you through this fancy flying boy thing. Trust me, you'll follow the fancy flying boy thing easily enough with her excellent description. And uh, it's uh, called the family of participation-related constructs. And uh, so we're going to start out by situating participation in a broad, objective, physical and social environment. Now, we know that the environment is important to participation outcomes for all people. And we can measure aspects of the environment very objectively. But there are also perceived aspects of the environment that are very important to participation. And if we think about those perceived aspects, we would say that if the environment is available, accessible and affordable, that that can influence whether or not you can turn up in it, whether you can attend. We would also think about the extent to which the environment is accommodating of your needs and that those accommodations are acceptable to everybody can influence your involvement while attending. So the perceived environment as well as the actual objective environment is important. But we also know that the actual context in which the participation occurs, so that's a much narrower, more defined element, if you like, um, and a little bit different from that broader environment, is the setting in which activity participation occurs and that the elements in the context, so that's the people, the place, the objects, the activity and the time, are also critical to your participation experience. So let's put participation in. So we're in the environment, in the context, and I've already said that there are two elements, attendance, which is being there, and involvement, so your experience while there. So now those blue circles that were uh, activity, competence, sense of self and preferences have turned into funny orange blobs, no longer blue circles, but they are still important related constructs, and they're intrapersonal constructs, okay? So they're about the individual. So activity competence is defined as the ability to, an ex to execute an activity and at an expected standard, okay? So it's competence. Sense of self, also very important, are the perceptions of confidence, satisfaction, self-determination, those important precursors and drivers of participation. And preferences, so those are the activities that hold interest or meaning or value to you. Also really important. So then binding those intrapersonal elements of competence, sense of self and preferences though, uh, is self-regulation, which are your executive functionings. And this was a piece that didn't come out in the review, in the systematic review of language of authors, but it is an important component that we understand from our own literature and further searching of the literature. So self-regulation are those executive processes that really direct and monitor your thinking, your emotions and your actions. And so they're also quite important to your participation. So those are the bits in the model or in the framework. And the other part of this framework and that is really important are how these elements go together. And in the first framework, we just had circles going, arrows going around in a circle, suggesting that, yes, it was circular, but it was kind of linear, if you like. Now, we know that isn't true, that it is a multi-dimensional transactional process. And so in this framework, 
uh, what we have is inserted bi-directional arrows. The first set that I'm going to show you are those that exchange between the individual and the participation experience. So in terms of activity competence, we would talk about when individuals act in the participatory moment that they have an opportunity to learn. In terms of preferences, while they're engaged in the participation, they have a perception of, sorry, in terms of sense of self, while they're engaged in the participation, they learn something about themselves and they're able to use that sense of self in that moment. And in terms of preferences, that individuals have an opportunity to choose or indeed to comply or cope with other choice, other people's choices will influence their preferences. So we can see that there are transactions between those elements and a participation experience. Now, there are also transactions that occur within the individual. So it's not just whether or not you get to participate, but actually it's your experience of your competence in participation or not that influences the development of your sense of self as someone who can do or not that might then be interpreted in terms of whether or not you will have a preference for future participation. So you can see that there's a, a much more dynamic and fluid interaction amongst those elements. Now, really importantly, we also know that participation occurs in a context, in, a, in an environment, in an environment. And the bi-directional arrow, arrows in this part of the framework are really intended to remind us that not only does the environment perhaps provide for and offer an opportunity for participation, or indeed regulate what you can do, but also the individual in the context and in the environment changes the context and changes the environment. They can respond to it, they can influence it. And I think it's really important that we don't forget that piece. I think we often focus on how we can set up the environment to support the individual as opposed to the other way around. So if we think about this framework, what does it say about participation change? Because, of course, if we're interventionists wanting to provide a service to support participation, we have to think about how we can optimise, change, develop, grow people's participation capacities. So those arrows are really important. They talk about transactions. It's not linear. It is complex. And uh, we can think about things from different perspectives. So those transactions, so a transaction is not an interaction, transaction is where there's been an exchange. So something has changed in the context as well as in the individual. So how might we think about the two dimensions of participation in terms of change? So if we think about changes in attendance over time across the life course from a young baby right through to, to older age, we can think about change in frequency of attendance or time spent or diversity and range. <coughs> Or we could think about uh, patterns of attendance in different environments or contexts. So patterns of attendance at home, school and community. But we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions. The first is, how much is enough? And the second is, what's a desirable pattern? And those things will change depending on, or the answers to those questions will depend on individuals, life course, where they are as well as their context and family circumstances and lots of other things. But they're important questions for us to understand. If we think about changes in involvement, we could just think about it from the engagement perspective to start with. So we can look at Felicity Bright's work and she talks about engagement as either engaging in, which could be defined as the focus or the persistence and the effort that an individual puts into in a particular participatory moment, or we can talk about engagement with, 
which is where you're actually starting to think about how the person is engaging with different elements within the context. So engagement and involvement and understanding how that changes over time is really important. And in fact, when we think about engagement in, I'm not sure what you think, but it, this is a really important question to me, is how does engagement change over time? And if a small example would be that we look at a very young baby and some of those videos that uh, we looked at earlier this morning show babies very engaged in particular things. Will that child's level of engagement in change over time? What they're capable of doing, will that change over time in terms of your capability of engagement? Or is it just what you engage in that changes? So some people seem to have higher levels of engagement no matter where they turn up. Yeah? So it takes a little bit of thinking through. The other thing to think about is changes in the context and the environment. And again, I have already mentioned this as a really important element. And I would challenge us to continue to think about how we enable individuals to influence their context positively to make it a good fit for them so that those accommodations and adaptations are a really good fit. So that's kind of a whirlwind. This is the, fam uh, the framework of um, participation-related constructs. But I thought you might be interested in thinking about, well, how do we select measures? So if we want to know about change, are there, in fact, any good participation measures out there that we could use to measure participation? So it's a very good question, and there have been different systematic reviews done on participation measures, and I'd just like to tell you that we've, uh, we've done another one. And uh, because we have taken a very broad perspective around participation, again, we have searched for measures that might turn up in education or in psychology or in health, because they're very important, um, distinct bodies of literature sometimes. So this, we were really looking for whether or not um, people were saying that they could measure the participation construct. So whilst we were interested in measures of attendance and involvement, we knew that we would have to select papers that where the authors talked about measuring participation and then have a look and see what they did. So anyone who's done a systematic review will have a little gasp at the numbers on this um, flow diagram. So we, we retrieved at the end of our search 32,767 papers that needed to be looked at. So we actually reviewed uh, abstracts of 3,600 papers and full texts of 1,200 papers. This has taken us rather a long time and I'm definitely using the royal us here. I would uh, acknowledge that there was a team here led by Brooke Adair um, who's really done the, a, a mammoth task in this. Full, full text, we extracted data from over 600 papers to come up with a list of um, measures. So of the measures, we found that there were 118 measures that were named measures, so that they had been identified as measures built to actually measure participation. Another 61 studies actually just built their own measure because, you know, there wasn't one that existed already. And then there were another 130 papers that actually counted observed behaviours, so they sat in the moment and observed children and counted um, behaviours that they defined as participation. So what I'm just going to talk to you very briefly about is these named measures. And because there were 118, what we decided to do was to actually select those that had been um, referenced in the literature more than one time um, in an effort to actually contain what we were trying to do. And also because people tend to choose measures on the basis of popularity. And we really wanted to challenge that by looking at what are the popular measures actually measuring so that we can have, think a little bit more carefully about what we are uh, doing. 
So then with those 51 measures, what we have done is actually mapped them to this framework. And of those measures, I can tell you that um, these are the measures that those authors of those different papers actually selected to measure participation. 25 of them measured some aspect of attendance. 12 measured some aspect of involvement, often enjoyment. Um, and 22 measured activity competence. And then we have a small number that measured other things sense of self preferences, context and environment. Now it's important that you realise that we were looking for measures of participation, so this is not the definitive list of measures of preferences or sense of self. There are obviously many more of those out there. So I think it's important to, um, to think that there are measures out there. So you don't necessarily need to go and build another one, but we do need to do some more work on what they're measuring and the validity and reliability of those measures for different age groups and different contexts. But I would say, that in summary, if we're wanting to measure, attendance can be measured using objective measures because it's an observable behaviour. So we don't need self-report. Involvement, though, is a subjective experience. So whether or not it can be observed accurately, I'm not sure. And who can self-report well is also to be considered and how we manage to develop measures that effectively measure involvement is, I think, something for us to do. There's also a question around measuring transactions. Remember, I've talked about the arrows in this framework. So what are the measures that are actually measuring what's happening in the participation moment, as these things are also really important and probably speak to the fidelity of our interventions? So let's just talk briefly about interventions. So participation interventions may aim to use participation as the means to another outcome, so it means attending and involvement as a process, or interventions may aim to improve participation outcomes through some other means. So if we think about this, we are saying participation as an intervention should focus on attendance and involvement while attending. And then the outcomes might relate to changes in the context or the environment or the person's activity competence or sense of self or on those transactions. Participation as the ends, as the outcome, then we may have interventions that are focused on activity competence or preferences or sense of self, or we may have interventions that focus on the environment or the context, but if we bring those things together, we're likely to have a better outcome in terms of participation outcomes. So just quickly to finish, we had a three-day symposium earlier this year with international people speakers from 10 different countries, which was really fantastic. And we looked at their current research. So this is beyond our systematic review. And we tried to pull from those three days the effective ingredients to improve participation from that current research. So we would say that individualised, personally meaningful participation goal setting is really critical. And that's consistent with lots of, of other literature. The participation intervention occurs in context, in the activity settings, and that those settings are safe they provide learning and they support family. That coaching or mentoring is the role of the therapist, not doing two or four. And that often peer mentors, either peers for the, for the child or the adolescent or peers for the family, are really important. And that solution-focused environment and or activity adaptation and a skilled facilitator are really important to have within that context. And sometimes you'll need to carefully select multiple strategies. So I would say that if we want to enable people to participate in all the things that they need to have to or want to do, and I do, 
that optimising participation, attendance and involvement may lead to maximised activity competence, a positive sense of self, development of preferences for a healthy lifestyle and indeed minimised impairments. Thank you for listening to the Centre of Research Excellence and Cerebral Palsy podcast. To find out more about our CRE, head to the website at crecp.org.au. Don't miss the next installation of this edition, which looks at upper limb orthoses. Trixie Studio.